From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Uh, this week, we've got, again, uh, the Groundsman Conversations, brought to you, as mentioned before, by the wonderful Sports Digital. Shout out to Ben Taverner and all the great work. It's great to see people already reaching out to him following the show. Um, great stuff. It's a great product. Um, we've... Uh, we've not got Grant, who continues to be in Australia and, and difficult with time zones, but we do have the magnificent Captain Giles Morgan. How are you, my friend? Roger, I'm well. I'm, I'm, I'm really well. Spring has sprung in London town. Um, the, the daffodils are out, and as a Welshman, I'm obviously delighted to see them. But <laughs> yeah, no, feeling good, feeling good, and I get to go skiing soon too, so... Um, Lucky old middle class me. I guess. Where, where are you off to? Where are you off I'm to? Going to a, a Swiss resort called Zermatt or Zermatt, as I think. Oh man, that is the top of the tree. Oh man. When I come back, I will have probably no clothes, no shirt on, because I think one <laughs> beer costs about fourteen. It is very expensive. Francs. So um, it is, is very sort of my, expensive. Maybe it's my last hurrah. Who knows? Good for you, mate. Carpe diem, as they say. Good for you. The way the world is today, you might as well suck it all in just now. Absolutely. Uh, listen, um, before we bring on uh, an amazing guest, I want to ask you something because this week, um, inadvertently, I think um, me, we kind of like provoked a discussion around that old chestnut of uh, branding and awareness versus data and direct uh, communication with a fan base and sponsorship. Um, it was around the Barcelona thing with Spotify. It seemed to all kick off on Twitter. It all kicked off on the other uh, WhatsApp groups that the industry uses. Um, I can't think of anybody better. And try and be as honest. I know you've moved from one to the other, but try and, you know, both sides. Wh- where do you see this debate lying now, Giles? Well, as as we discussed on this show, I, I had my Damascene moment. I, I put my hand up fair and squarely and said that the old days, my days at HSBC sponsorship, which was and still is quite a fearsome sponsorship vehicle, um, that I wasn't necessarily using the right metrics to either make investment decisions or necessarily commercial decisions for the bank. And that eyeballs and branding are all very well and hospitality is all very well, but there was a bigger, better... Um, way of measuring efficacy and that was data and 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 i stand by that there are those in the industry and they know who they are if they're listening who still think that i've kind of um 
sort of swallowed the Kool-Aid of the New World Order. And, and the truth lies somewhere in between, obviously, which is there is great value to branding. There is great value to client engagement and internal engagement. And there is nothing like attaching your boring old commoditized brand to something that is super sexy in sport or music or entertainment to push that brand along. And that's fine. And I'm not knocking that. That's kind of sponsorship 1.0. What is interesting is sponsorship 2.0, which is a hybrid of the two, which is to say, if you really want to use that fandom to move your brand, surely, A, it would be worth knowing who the fans you want to attach your brand to are so that you can understand what you're doing with them and how you transact with them. And secondly, wouldn't it be worth knowing something about those fans before you started assuming how you were going to engage them? So you could engineer your marketing activity to the activation, which is old school, which is surprise and delight people, in a much more empirical way. And that's what the industry didn't do. I'm not knocking eyeballs. I'm not knocking activation. I'm not, I'm not knocking people serving volivant in a corporate hospitality tent if that's what they want to do. But everything has to happen for a reason. And the irony is, is that B2B sponsorship, which is the one that's sort of now frowned upon, is actually sponsorship where you do know your customer because you know exactly who they are and you interact with them in a physical way. That's what B2B is. D2C sponsorship, which has to have data at the heart of everything, is you don't know who they are, so you need to find out who they are so you can then interact with them in the right way and transact. And in a world that is changing now, you know, whether you call it Web3, whether you call it blockchain, whether you call it NFTs, whether you call it crypto, it's all coming. The unstructured web is coming. And therefore, it is going to be more and more important that every single entity that has customers, whether it be in sport, music, entertainment, everything, needs to know their own, their own diaspora. Because if you haven't put structure to the unstructured, you're going to find it very, very difficult to commercialize. So what you're talking about with that bastard deal was fascinating. You've got the ultimate tech firm, I think, have done a hell of a good deal. I don't know the details financially. The world has thrown itself up in arms going, what Barcelona only had 3 million data records of people. Well, in the world of sport, that's pretty good. But Spotify would have looked at that and gone, we could get a lot more from Barcelona, with the alchemy being there are a lot of people in different parts of the world, particularly um, with the Spanish with the Spanish link that goes all over the world, is that we can use um, the Barcelona link and Spotify's huge um, data connections to create a very, very compelling program. And I suspect, without knowing the details, I suspect Spotify did one hell of a good deal because they were able to leverage the fact that 3 million data records may be good in sport, but I don't think it's that good elsewhere. No, if it is 3 million. Um, but uh, I think that was a great explanation. Here's here, here's how I see it a little bit. Um, uh, and I'm going to be as fair as I can here. I believe um, that the the whole industry of sponsorship for the last 25 years has in itself been a bundle, a bundle of assets um, that um, in the last 10 years, especially the weighting of importance of those assets has shifted dramatically. Um, In the old days, 
sponsorship was used as an equivalent for media values, media exposure. So in many ways, the fans of Chelsea aren't that as important as the TV audience that would include not just Chelsea, but uh, people everywhere uh, in every country in the world. I remember the sponsorships I did with the the Bank of Scotland and uh, up in my league, and all they wanted to know was the equivalent media value that they could sell in. So sponsorship was equivalent media value with a little bit of hospitality thrown in where it was used the way it was used, as you call it, volivants, whatever you want to call it. Um, sponsorship has dramatically changed. Now, you know why it's dramatically changed, Ed Giles? Because I have got an easy option to buy the media equivalent audience elsewhere. You can buy it elsewhere. You do not need to be an official sponsor of FIFA to get the audience of FIFA. The whole world of programmatic and ad tech changed that dramatically over the last 10 years. I can buy an audience, I can target it, everything like that. So the people that are saying sponsorship is great because of that, I I, I don't know what they're saying. I, I think they're really, I really think they're they're off the mark. What what I would add to is this is sponsorship valuable if you've got both? i.e. the deep deep data analysis of the fan base that you can interrogate. You know how many people have got a car that's got at least three years old. You know how many people have been married in the last 18 months so a kid's coming along that you could sell to Pampers, that you can sell to Audi. You need to have that. And as you rightly say, NFTs are going to multiply that by 10, that kind of need. That's the base point. If sport all... If sport is also got, if sport is also got the exposure bit as well, then great. I don't need to go elsewhere to buy the audience. It's a one-stop buy. But if you don't have that bit the way Barcelona does it, I cannot understand anybody going in the marketing niche for sponsorship for simply media branding values. You can do it more efficiently elsewhere. And, and this is the pushback that, that many are saying, and I would have been firmly in their camp, by the way, so um, this isn't meant critically at all. But if you've got an industry that's 30 years old, where the old model was the model that everybody learned and trained on, it stands to reason that the senior executives in the sponsorship industry are have been weaned and nourished on the old model. So anything new looks very scary. And they've managed to convince rights holders who still sell the same deck and the same uh, piece. And I've seen it recently, as you know, in a recent iteration, I was seeing the same decks rehashed, relogoed with the same stuff. And the, that's the point. Some of that stuff is very valuable, the old guard stuff. I'm not knocking it at all. It is. But if you then put the alchemy, as I said, that it's the blend, that and deep data, that then makes... That, that makes the hypothesis really valuable. And I'm going to tell a story out of school. As you know, I'm very involved with Pumpjack DataWorks, which is all about data analytics. I had lunch a couple of weeks ago, let's just say with the most important executive I've ever worked with in my career. So you can probably guess that's a former CEO of the company I used to work for. Yeah. And yeah. I, I went through the hypothesis that you've just talked about. And I asked him very directly, 
would this have, had we taken this to you as a hypothesis, would my sponsorship budget have gone up? And he looked at me witheringly, which he did quite well as a person, but he looked at me and said, if you'd come to me, one, we'd be doing, we would have done different things. He's retired now, so he's, it's long gone. But secondly, we'd have done it so differently. And thirdly, you'd have got a lot more money because you'd have been yeah. proving ROI and you'd have become a grown-up marketer. Amen. And the, trub- and the trouble is, right, and this is certainly true of me, is HSBC as a company, I just pick on them, but I know them well, their advancement with data and technology and consumers is off the charts. It has been for years. Of course it is, like most of the very big companies. It has to be. You have to segment your audience. It has to be. The, the, Dane, the, the, the trouble has been is that the sponsorship departments that often sit in marketing, but sometimes sit in corporate affairs, sometimes sit in chief of staff, have all been set up in the old model. And therefore, they're not using the, the metrics and the demographics and the other approach that the marketeers in other parts of these big businesses are. The moment you start bringing those marketeers into sponsorship and that the agencies and advisors and the consultants understand what the real value is, you're going to see the change. Until it, And it's happening slowly. Aren't there an awful lot of people in the last nine months, Roger, who are now beating the drum that are you not entertained to been talking about for a while? It's happening, but it needs a few people to retire. Yeah, it, it does. Um, it does. Uh, so I'm glad. Uh, and you said us beating the drum for, for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I should say to the listeners, poor Roger's had some uh, sort of uh, um, root canal work as well. So he's dribbling. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can see him. You can't. I mean, it, it sounds like he's got a list, but honestly, it's just Scottish. You can't understand a word. Anyway, our guest, back to that. Manoj Badali, um, gosh, what to say about him. He's been on a few podcasts over the last couple of years, but I think we've timed our run beautifully um, with him. He's the co-owner of the Rajasthan Royals, which has been a, a really important IPL franchise. But perhaps more interestingly to us, he's a, a co-founder of a, of a venture builder, um, Blenheim Chilcot. And it's that alchemy and that, that, that blend, which I think is interesting because he's uniquely placed, and I hope he will, to talk to us about both the, t- the seismic technological shifts that are happening within sport, but also the, the, the shift in consumption from fans. And I'm dying to ask him how that's affecting change, both with Rajasthan and some of the other franchises um, he's involved with. He was born in India, but, but educated in, in England and, and, and lucky him at Cambridge University. I can only go there to uh, join the tourists now for a, a punting, uh, a punting <laughs> lesson, but it looks beautiful from the outside. Um, he's very clearly a man of the world, and I think it's going to be an enormous privilege, and I can't wait for the next 45 minutes to welcome him to the show. Fantastic. Me too. Manoj, a very warm welcome to the Groundsman Conversations. Lovely to have you on the show. Well, it's nice to be here, and uh, I'm sure they all say it, but I am uh, a genuine listener to the show, so uh, looking forward to it. Well, we're really chuffed about that, and I just want to get straight into it. You're Indian-born, um, UK-educated. What does Minaj uh, Pradali, what's his sport passion? Where's your own sport passion come from as a fan, as a player? What ignited you about the love of sport, which it clearly has done in, in your career um, all those years ago? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's, um, I think it's like most people, Giles. I mean, I, you know, I started off as a player. Um, you know, my parents were first generation immigrants, so their emphasis was on education. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to go to a school that, um, you know, played a reasonable level of sport uh, across all sports. Um, I played a lot of hockey, a lot of cricket. Uh, I wasn't brave enough to play rugby, 
Um, and then, and then like all of us, you, you get to a point for me, it probably was at university where, you know, you realize you're uh, unfortunately not as good as you perhaps thought you were um, in your younger years. And you, you, you see what elite sportsmen actually look like. In my case, I remember um, seeing Mike Catherine and Steve James at the university trials and thinking, <laughs> oh dear. Um, and then you, uh, you quickly, um, you quickly switch to, realizing that you're going to play a lot of amateur sport maybe uh, and hopefully and i've been lucky enough to do that um and uh, and from then on really it's been as a fan uh, and a realization that the only way of getting to meet elite sportsmen is to uh, uh to invest in the invest in the sport so it's you know it's that usual journey but like i love all sport i'm a massive fan and uh, i'm a sport obsessive really and when did you start seeing that sport is a commercial entity i mean we've all grown up with professional sport but seeing it as sport is pivoting into a maybe a new economic landscape when did you start saying well this could be not just a passion and people love to invest in their passions but actually um a, a, an industry which has good returns it's a really interesting question i think there were two there were sort of two um two times in my life when i remember having conversations uh, about the business of sport, if you like. One was, I just remember Lodi Gardens in Delhi, probably back in um, 1998, wandering around with a very close friend of mine, Abbas Hussein, who is, who is the brother of the then England captain, Nasser Hussein. And the three of us were just talking about how unprofessional the governance and management of sport was. And I remember we, we looked at, um, I think I, I went back and looked at the, Deloitte's report on county cricket and couldn't believe uh, how few counties were actually solvent. You know, if you took, especially if you took away the sort of ECB subsidies. So I remember get you know having my interest peak, particularly in the business of cricket, sort of back then. Um, and then I probably a bit further on. Uh, I mean, I've been in business uh, with uh, you know my close friend and business partner of the last twenty five years, Charles Mindenhall, and you know over the course of the early two thousands, I used to bore him senseless with observations on the lost opportunity that the English cricket board just weren't seeing with the growth of the Asian pound, the growth of the short form game. And I think he just got so bored one day uh, after dinner, he just said, look, can you stop talking about it? And can we put some money into it? Uh, you know, as we, as we do when we're building our business, put some money aside and just go and do something. And that was in 2005 when I, um, uh, when I then with him set up investors in cricket uh, and we acquired the commercial rights to Leicestershire County Cricket Club. We set up a television show in India called yep. Cricket Star, which was like a sort yep. of pop idol for young cricketers. Um, and we set up um, a Champions League of T20, uh, all of which were spectacularly uh, unsuccessful. Uh, but what they did do was get me a little bit of a reputation within the game and within particularly the BCCI, yeah. Control Indian Cricket, bit of a reputation for for being someone that wanted to innovate and do something different in cricket so when the IPL came along I was invited to uh, bid for a franchise so um Manoj when you say you got a bit of a reputation I've read everything that you, you you when you were talking about these properties here did they look at you as a bit of the awkward squad uh to be managed or did they say, oh, wow, you know, because I, when I was doing my prep for this, there's so many things that resonated, you know, no innovation comes without risk capital. What a beautiful, beautiful phrase. So, you know, when you start touching the world of sport as an outsider, how did you react and how did they react? I think that for me, the first few years was a real learning. 
process, actually, the, you know, learning about the governance of sport, learning about the governors of sport, the various boards, the various committees. Um, and to answer your question, Roger, I think, look, I think there were people um, and there still are people in every sport who see um, people with commercial uh, aspirations or, 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 or innovation aspirations as outsiders. Um, there were definitely people within the English cricket board, which at the time was run by a chap called Giles Clark, um, who were very resistant to yep. things that we were trying to do with Leicestershire uh, back then. Um, but I was quite fortunate, which was at the time there was a vice chairman of the Indian cricket board called Lalit Modi, who himself had come from a commercial background and who himself was hell-bent on sort of growing the game and doing innovative, thing, innovative things within the game. But, but what, what you're alluding to, I think, is you know one of the challenges uh, around investing in sport is um, is kind of how sport is governed and, yes. and, and who those governments are and getting them on side. And that's what I learned really early on, which is if you're, if you're not working with uh, the governors of the game, it's actually very hard to make meaningful difference. Well, you say that, then that takes us immediately on to, you know, the, the first decision somebody like yourself has to make or other people that have been on this podcast, you know, whether it's the triathlon guys or the CLGP guys, do you do the hard yards by getting in with the existing governing body and slow, slow, persuade, persuade? Or do you just say, tell you what, I'm going to do a new format? And and, and the IPL clearly, I think, is the second. I, I believe it is the, the, the poster child of, of what sport can do when um, fresh thinking comes in. Um, I guess I would put all this little um, reflections here under the heading CVC trying to change everybody and investing there, or is it better to do what you guys did and what the others are doing and start with a, a fresh piece of paper? I mean, gosh, there's a lot in there, yeah. Roger. I mean, the one thing I, the one thing, if I sort of unpacking that a bit, the one thing I'd say is, you know, the IPL, um, while it was created outside of the traditional governance structures of the BCCI and Indian cricket, it was completely and totally endorsed by the BCCI. And in my mind, the most important decision that the BCCI made was to carve out the governance of the IPL as distinct from the existing governance structure. So the first thing, the first thing, you know, when people, when I look at other sports that are going through, uh, you know, aspirations to create new leagues, to create new uh, platforms, the first thing you have to interrogate is the governance. And if you, if, and if, and if you're not prepared to create independent governance structures for something new. It's a bit, it's by the way, it's no different when a big company says they want to do something disruptive. If you try and do something disruptive, I mean, Josh, you worked at HSBC. If you tried to do something disruptive from head office, you know, it's, it's unfortunately it's dead before it's born. Uh, if you're going to do anything disruptive, it has to be done in a governance structure and with a risk appetite um, and with a, uh, a, an ability to fail. Um, that's outside of the traditional structure. So um, I think that is really important. Then coming to sort of the advent and the appearance of private capital, uh, I think there's a first, I think there's a really interesting debate, which is, is private capital best had in the leagues or in the teams? <laughs> so again, I come back to the IPL model. The IPL is really clipped 
right? We have private capital in the IPL, but only in the teams, right? The league is very much owned by the BCCI. So if you take the 100 in, in the UK, there's a raging debate at the moment, which is, should you bring private capital into the 100? Um, and if so, do you bring it into the 100 or do you bring it to the teams? Um, and as I talk about in the book I co-authored um, last year with Simon Hughes, um, the, the that's a really important debate that I don't think sports fully had yet. And so you've got sort of CBC coming into the league as a minority investor. You know, does that really work? Have they really got enough uh, ability to influence things, impact things? Uh, so I think there's the league versus team debate. And then there's the debate about the type of capital, the type of private capital. And I think at the moment that just all gets lumped together. Yeah, it does. You know, we talk about you know, we talk about private capital. What does that mean? Does that mean <laughs> well done? Does that mean it's okay, it's okay to talk about, you know, uh, you know, Russian oligarchs investing in sport? Is that the same as CBC, an institution that's got a track record of um, you know, building things, investing in sport? And actually, what are the risks of institutions that have a time frame in which they have to get returns right so you know venture capital private cap private funds typically have five seven year cycles in which they've got to make returns my argument is the most valuable um capital uh, private type of private capital to get is private capital that is patient uh, that doesn't have arbitrary timelines and which has to make a return Private capital does have an aspiration to get a return on its investment, but private capital that also recognises the responsibility we have to fans and that is is as committed to the social purpose of what we do, uh, which is why I'm intrigued by, for example, with some of what they do in Germany, where they do involve fans in the actual ownership of the club. So I think it's a much more nuanced question. Oh, it is. It is, but let, 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 let me take the first one about where should private equity come, the league or the clubs. To answer that, you have to ask another question, which is never ideal, but let's do it. What kind of league are you talking about? Now, I've read, you know, you're talking about the importance of level playing fields, unpredictable outcomes, rebalancing. Um, I'll add in no promotion relegation. You can add in closed leagues, uh, salary caps. Uh, it's all sounding familiar, isn't it? Um, none of the leagues uh, in European sport are like that. None of them. They have got promotion and relegation. It's a little bit vita mia morte tua. Um, how can you do equity investments when your shareholding body, i.e. the clubs, changes through promotion and relegation every single year? So I, I believe that that thinking is relatively simple to answer. Unless you put the leagues into the kind of thing I've described before and you've described, yeah, it has to go to the clubs. The, that's why I, I Matt, personally don't understand what CVC are trying to do other than what is a very simple and smart factoring of revenue deal. Yeah, look, I think sometimes when we talk about the business of sport, we talk about it as if it's completely different to any other industry. And actually the reality, it isn't. Right, which is um, front and center of any consideration should be how do you grow your number of customers? And in sport, they happen to be the fans. And so front and center of any debate about what's right and what's good for the sport should be, does this 
benefit the fans? And does this increase the number of fans? Uh, because if you do that and the sport gets bigger, the economics within the sport get bigger and everyone benefits. And that's, the tr- that's true of any industry. The, the characteristics of what makes an attractive sports league, and again, you know, we, we both have very strong opinions on this, um, are in my view, you know, effective competition. I think, you know, again, the lifeblood of sport have has always been and will always be the economic flow from the media rights and the way you the way you drive maximum uh, media rights value uh, is you and, and the way you drive the greatest fan engagement which ultimately drives the value of those media rights is by having unpredictable outcomes right we none of us want to watch a 10-0 football match none of us want to watch 15 versus 14 on a rugby field we want to watch unpredictable outcomes and to do that You've got to create a level playing field. To create a level playing field, you've got to have salary caps. So the reason I I agree with you, Roger, which is I think private investment is best channeled into the teams, is that requires effective regulation. Just as when Giles worked through the financial crash in 2008, the failure of the financial services industry and the continuing failure of several industries is ineffective regulation. You know, and the reality is we don't pay for effective regulators. So all the good regulators do the job for a few years and then try and get a job in the commercial world. Well, you know, that, if we're not careful, the same thing's going to happen in sport. If, if we don't have these conversations and recognize the criticality of yes. independent regulation yes. that puts the fan and the player at the center of the decision making, then... We can talk all day long about the benefits of private capital, but you know it's going to be a spiral to the financial crash of 2008. So you need effective regulation and you need private capital. And the reason you need private capital is I don't believe, and I think we sometimes get confused, we definitely do it in cricket and we do it in other sports, between what the role of a governing body should be. I am very clear, a governing body should be there to regulate to protect the fan and to protect players. The minute governing bodies extend beyond that, you have to ask yourself the question and they start delivering tournaments. They start creating tournaments. But that's what they do. They're everything all together. They are the judiciary, the executive, and and, and they're the the parliament. It's a dreadful constitution. And and, and the worst thing about that, Roger, is then you're not necessarily accessing the cheapest the most patient and and the most significant pools of capital that you can, right? Right now, there are, I mean, I've been at this for 15 years. I have never seen a period where there is so much private capital ready to invest in sport. And without, without investment, I mean, everyone goes on about the success of the IPL. And I've talked about the governance. We shouldn't forget the IPL even though it is now one of the most profitable leagues in the world, the teams didn't make a penny for five years, actually for nearly 10 years. And the investment dollars, there was over half a billion dollars of investment wow. when it was in the IPL from the, from the private investors and another half a billion that went in from the governing body. So you don't build things without investment. And I think the best form of capital for investment comes from the private sector. Well said.
And, and Manoj, the, I was, the question I was going to ask you, which you've sort of started, which is if IPL started in 2007. When do you, as you look back on it, and I know it's one of the profitable leagues in the world and it's been huge success stories, when do you start both commercially, you saw it really starting to make the turn? And secondly, other than patient capital, what were the key cornerstone moments as a product, if that's the right expression, that you think that the touch paper got lit, that this is going to stay and this is going to become a, a proper going concern? Because there's been lots of experiments in sport historically. Some fail, some don't. When do you feel, when you look back as a historian, uh, look, I've probably got a different answer. And of course, when things work, it's amazing how we reinvent history and, and point it out. <laughs> and the, truth, the truth was, yes, we made the investment. And yes, we had a little bit of foresight to do that. But we, we had no idea it was going to get as big as it got, as quickly as it got. For me personally, there were a number of things about the IPL that I was sceptical about, actually. Um, one was whether Indian fans would ever cheer for teams against you know their indian superstars and so for me one of the defining moments when i thought gosh this thing really is taking off was when we were playing the semi-final in 2008 in the first season um you know we had 30,000 fans in mumbai cheering for shane watson and for shane warne against virenda sewag and gautam gambir who were two indian superstars and i thought wow you know i wasn't sure if Indian fans would get behind, I mean, I, I grew up in the UK, so I was, I'm a mad Liverpool fan, and you know, I know how tribal we are about our English Premier League clubs. I wasn't sure you'd be able to create that tribalism around, you know, the Rajasthan Royals, a brand new brand that no one had ever heard of. Um, and the third thing that I think we were, we, you, you, you're always nervous about in um, in cricket is. Would the BCCI, you know, who are the dominant governing body, really let the IPL flourish through this sort of slightly or quasi-independent uh, governance structure? Um, and so I think the short answer is, by the time we got to the semi-final and that final of that first year, and, you know, you had 100,000 people outside of your hotel as you were going to the game, um, I think we realised it had the potential to be quite big then. I have to ask the question as we're on the eve of the of the next series or the next playing of the IPL. And you mentioned 2008, you, you talk about that first year, which was pretty historic. There was an individual, a good friend of yours, Shane Warne, who I, he was so mercurial to the game of cricket. He, he was a Pied Piper like Ian Botham had been and Viv Richards had been that broadened it. Tell us, if you would, a little bit about the Shane Warne that the man you knew and I know loved very much. Um, well, look, you know, as you say, um, we became close friends through that sort of experience in 2008. Um, I thought, by the way, you you, you summarised his impact on the game and, uh, you know, incredibly well last week. So, so, so perhaps without repeating, you know, his impact on the game, which which you, know, you could you could spend half an hour on. I mean, you know, he was the greatest uh, spinner, spin bowler of all time. And you know, any debate, by the way, around that, you know, when people talk about others and talk about, you know, the, the armies of great South Asian spinners, I mean, Shane Warne did not bowl on spin-friendly wickets, end of story. So, um, you know, his impact on the game of cricket, I, th I think the thing that I feel pleased about is the one thing, you know, and he and I used to talk about this a lot, the one thing he, he, he sort of regretted 
about his international career was that he never really got a chance to show what an amazing captain he could be. And I think the IPL gave him that platform and he certainly delivered on that for us and for the tournament. The two things, the two things I'd say about Shane Warne, the human being, are, which perhaps the listeners won't be uh, as aware of. You know, one is uh, he literally was one of the most generous, loyal, kind um, people that I've met in my life. And uh, I could give you a thousand stories, but his unique gift was making other people perform and believe and then perform uh, way above um, their ability levels under any other leadership. And that's in business, in, in sport, that's, that really is a very rare and unique gift. The second thing I'd say uh, that people won't be as well is he was a genuine entrepreneur. I mean, you know, it's what I do for a living. It's what I've done with, you know, Charles Mindenhall for 25 years is we've built businesses, we've taken risks, we've tried to disrupt things. He was a genuine entrepreneur, both within the game, by the way, and outside of the game. He was always thinking about the Shane Warne brand, the Shane Warne gin, the Shane Warne new initiative. You know, he loved this golf and was always talking about how golf could be innovated. And so the IPL, as an innovation, as an entrepreneurial um, uh, product, was hugely interesting to him. And we used to talk about the business of the game um, and, and, and entrepreneurial opportunities as much as we talked about cricket. Well, he was certainly, he's left an indelible print on, on, so, on so many people, and I hope there are generations, I think there will be generations of children oh, sure. who are now, who've grown up because he lit a touch paper. And as for all of us, when we were young, there were people who did it. You, you've focused a lot on cricket. You clearly love the sport and you were brought up or educated in England. And you had a look at the ECB. We've talked about the county structure and we then looked at how IPL and different forms of, of 2020 and now the 100 have happened. How surprised were you um, when all of the, the stories started to come out specifically about Yorkshire County Cricket Club, but I suspect other counties as well within the English game, that this level of racism that existed? Was that something that, A, you knew about, B, you were surprised about, C, do you feel it's being addressed? Just as, as, a, as someone who is a... a part of the sport as you are what's your view on it um so let me again there's a, there's a few different questions in there was i surprised no um you know i do uh, i mean I, I i grew up playing club cricket and school cricket um and you know so the stuff that uh, azim rafiq talked about which interestingly actually to many of my friends they were sort of shocked by and said, you know, that couldn't possibly have happened. Actually, you know, almost without exception, you know, I can, you know, I can visualize similar experiences, um, you know, from from you know school and club sport. Um, so, so was I surprised? No. Do I recognize some of those experiences? Yes. Um, I think though, context is always important in these discussions, right? And. Um, you know, when I talk to my children who've grown up in a very different um, context to the one that I did, you know, a much more multicultural Britain, a much more um, immigrant aware Britain and a much more inclusive Britain, they look back at some of that stuff and literally can't believe it. And it's actually quite a cathartic experience for me because I, I remember spending a, oh, wow. a, a Sunday 
telling them of some of my own stories and, you know, from playing football in the Midlands for a factory side. And um, and they were kind of shocked that I'd never talked to them about that. But I suppose, you know, I think you've always got to put things in the context in which they happen. It doesn't, doesn't legitimise them. It doesn't say it's okay because it happened in the 70s or it's okay because it happened in the 80s. It's okay because it happened, you know, in a factory works league, you know, in Bromsgrove. That doesn't make it okay. But the question you have to ask is, um, have we moved on? Are we doing enough to move on? And what we can do, what can we do to continually improve the education, uh, you know, around these situations? And I think the danger is um, that, that, that we don't focus on the solutions enough and that we don't talk about what needs to change. Um, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for the game. I think cricket, by the way, is uniquely placed to certainly as it pertains to, you know, racial integration of South Asian communities and, uh, and um, you know, Afro-Caribbean communities. I, I, I think it's uniquely placed and it's the only sport where the England team uh, is hugged by, you know, a Yorkshireman with blonde, you see a Yorkshireman with blonde hair, you know, and a, and a skinhead with tattoos on his arm embracing, um, you know, Pakistani-born guy with a beard. So, look, there's real opportunity. I'm beginning to to drift off your question, I think, but not surprised. No, but it's interesting that you say that because I um, played a little bit of cricket when I lived in Hong Kong for a bit. Not very serious cricket, I should hasten to add, but it was cricket nonetheless. And one of the things, Hong Kong has always been a, a melting pot of different people traveling from all over the world, coming to, to, to live and work in, in Hong Kong, and hopefully things will settle there now. But playing at the Hong Kong Cricket Club and playing with people from literally all over the world with just one thing in common, which was cricket. I, I agree with you entirely. I think it is one of the most international of sports in terms of, I remember a long time ago working with the England cricket team in a, in a former life and being in Sri Lanka when a young Freddie Flintoff who had yet to be discovered was playing for England A and we were stuck in a hotel. It was with him and Adam and Ben Hollyoak, if you can believe. I mean, that's how far we're going back. And these young boys in the jungle, no mobile phones, ironic with Vodafone as a sponsor. And I remember watching a game in the middle of Kirinagula, which is not a central part of Sri Lanka, and sitting on a tractor with a Sri Lankan farmer who had come down from, the, from his fields to watch the game. And I'm sitting on his front tyre chatting cricket. You couldn't have got two people from different walks of life who became firm friends for three hours. And... I, 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 I want cricket to be that beacon for the future. You know what, Giles? I think what's so interesting about that story is that's what, so that is one of the things that's unique about sport, which is sport, I think, can... Racism exists everywhere. We see it every day. We see it in different parts of the world. This notion that we are not going to be a prejudice and racist society is nonsense. It will, in Correct. 50 years' time, there will be people who are racist and prejudiced. What sport does though is it breaks down barriers. It definitely did for me. I can tell you as a um, you know as a South Asian kid growing up in a you know, reasonably rough part of Northwest London, um, it was it you know actually all of my friends were were Welsh or English or because I played sports. Um, so it's, sport can be a huge positive, I think. And you know I'd rather shift the conversation now to okay, what do we do? For the, all those people who were surprised, no longer be surprised. It's out there. 
it, it varies depending on what part of the country you're in and whether you're in an urban area or a rural area. But, you know, it's nuanced, but we've just got to get on the front foot and bury it. Let, 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 on that exact topic then, let, let me ask you this. Um, as, as an ex-league commissioner myself, I saw Tom Harrison um, in the middle of that. And I have to admit, I felt quite a quantum of sympathy for him. Um, I'm not close enough to to know what they were doing, what they weren't doing. I just saw him in the middle of what seems to be very common these days, that you identify somebody that can be attacked and he was just getting it from all sides. You, I'm speaking to you now as a club owner. Um, how would you, if your club had been in, in English cricket, how would you have expected your commissioner, your chief executive to have done anything different in those those days and weeks? Um Actually, I sort of go back, Roger, to 20 minutes ago, which is, I think, part of the challenge for um, for someone like Tom um, is kind of who is he, right? He's the chair. Well he's the, said. He's the chief executive of the ECB. Is he the chief executive of a body that's there to protect and represent the interests of his shareholders who are effectively the counties? Is he the commissioner? Is he the governor and the regulator of the game? Is he or, the marketer? Or is he a marketer and deliverer? Well said, well and, and, said. And the challenge actually for Tom is he's kind of all of those. and All a few of them, of yeah. So I think until you get that clarity, it's very hard to have expectations of what should happen. And then, you know, lo and behold, what happens, of course, is um, you know the politicians get involved, and parliamentary select committees happen, and uh, you know, and suddenly you, you know you've got people on the back foot, and and it, and it all gets very complicated. I think we have to get clearer. Um, and I know you've lobbied for this, you know, through the show and and elsewhere. We've got to be, get really clear on what the role of these governing bodies yes. actually and should be, because we've got a, we've got an industry that's attracting capital and growing into a 21st century modern industry, but we've got 19th century um, governance. Very well said. Manoj, you're um, a, a co-owner of the Rajasthan Royals, and this show, um, which is sponsored by uh, Sports Digital, who make the funkiest presentations that all rights holders should use. They bring it to life. They're awesome. We love them. However, um, the question I have for you is tech and technology, which obviously is a huge part of your other life in terms of your venture business, your venture builder business. How much, and without giving anything away, how much is technology, investing in technology through the the franchise that you have, an important driver for you going forward? Do you know what's a great question? Because we um, we used to have this graphic uh, in our in our offices of all the different businesses that we started. And for years, from sort of 2008 to 2015, we used to we used to sort of talk about all of our different businesses and then invariably you'd get to the Rajasthan rules and you know Charles would either say it's kind of Manager's passion project or I'd say yeah, it's a bit of an outlier it doesn't really relate to any of the other businesses actually when I look back on it you know I now I now think you know for me you know that the actual economic value of a sports franchise is these are digital content factories that's why they're growing in the you know with with the transformation that we've seen with the OTT platforms with the advent of Netflix and this almost insatiable desire 
that fans now have for digital content, the owners of that content own very valuable businesses. And that's what these sports franchises have become. So funny enough, the, 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 certainly the way we've built the Rajasthan Royals has absolutely followed the Blenheim Chalcott playbook for building a digital business. I think, bizarrely, we were slow to recognise quite how like our other businesses, um, owning a sports franchise really is, because it's about maximising the number of fans. It's about providing a personalised fan experience and fan engagement, no different to a clear score or a salary finance is trying to do in fintech. Um, so so it's, it's, it's an admission, really, that it probably started out as a slightly different type of investment, but over time, um, it really is no different to any of our other tech investments. And I think the other thing that I love about sports at the moment is, you know, we talked about the sort of advent of private capital, but we're also seeing now just the explosion of tech coming into sport and the explosion of data that's being used in sport. And so, you know, my Rajasthan Royal reviews are not that different to my you know, Agilisys reviews in terms of some of the conversations that we're having, some of the KPIs that we're tracking, some of the new investment opportunities that we're looking at. Um, so there's really been a convergence there. Let, let me follow on there and, and really dig into VC uh, because, you know, I spend most of my, my work in sport tech and investing in early stage sport tech. And, and you make an immediate distinction here that is really important. IP, an IP business, which is what you've got, a franchise, uh, and I think you described it exactly well. And then you've got all these tech businesses around the, the world of sport. And, you know, I, I would ask you this because I looked at your portfolio and I didn't see a lot of sport tech. You've got an IP sport business, which is one you've just described. Now, I look at this world every day and, you know, I, I, what do I see? I see a total addressable market that isn't big enough pro sports isn't big enough I see incredibly long sales cycles for some of the reasons we've said before sport doesn't like innovation it's slow not invented here everything like that um and you know I, I I then look at the thing about new audiences completely different way of looking at things Gen Z and I'm saying does sports still offer a, a product market fit you know classic VC talk and um I think it's a very tough sector, sport tech. You know, it has become a little bit like everything. The, the tide has raised every, every boat in, in, in early stage. But um, I think we're going to get into a little moment now where we're going to separate the wheat from the chaff in sport tech and data businesses and everything that's around that. Because if you apply proper VC process, a lot of the businesses don't make it. Well, I mean, there was a lot. There was a lot in there, Roger, and I, unfortunately, I, I sort of agree with it all. Um, the, the, <laughs> if I if I try and um, you know row back to where you started, I mean, by the way, it's a great observation, which is within Bledham Chalcott, we talk about our financial services practice, our ed tech practice, our gov tech practice, our martech practice. Actually, we have fixed the the the, the observation that you've made. We do now have um, under the uh, the heading of the emerging media ventures team, we have a dedicated. Uh, sports investment uh, practice and sports venture building practice. And we are doing things outside of the Rajasthan Royals. I mean, we, we've just bought the Barbados Royals. Um, we've got an agency in India that's purely focused on 
digital rights uh, acquisition and monetization. Um, we're building a, a global network of academies with a sort of uh, a digital platform at the center of that. We've looked, we, we have the Royal School of Business, which is an education platform for sports uh, profession, aspiring sports professionals in India. So we, we, we're doing a lot in what you would call sport tech outside of the Royals right now. Your observation about the moment of truth for sport tech, I mean, that's kind of true of all tech, right? Yes, it is. What, happens, what happens with our industry is partly because we're so, as in the tech industry, we're so valuation obsessed and sort of we're so fashion and capital is so fashion driven. We've seen it in 2001, 2008, 2008, which is loads of capital flows in. Entrepreneurs are able to get ridiculous valuations for their businesses. Um, the unit economics don't really stack up. The business plans don't really stack up. And then we suddenly switch from revenue growth to good old fashioned cash flow as the way of judging these businesses. <laughs> so that's happening, by the way, in fintech right now. It's happening in edtech. And we're about to go into a five to seven year part of the cycle where that that reckoning is going to happen, happen across technology. And you are right, Sportech, uh, that's going to happen. The one difference about Sportech, as, I, don't, I don't know if it's unique, but it is a bit of a difference, is there are too many professionals in the sports, sports technology area who are doing it out of a passion and a love for the sport. And passion is great, but passion without solid economic and robust foundations doesn't get you anywhere. I have a very quick question um, with your Rajasthan Royals hat on, but also tech and investment. Um, you um, work alongside or invest alongside uh, an old colleague of ours on the show. He's not that old, but he's in Jerry Cardinal and Redbird. How's that been working with him? What's it like? Yeah, look, it's early days. I, I, you know, I hadn't heard of Redbird until they approached us. I think it was in October of 20. Um, and, at the time, I was in the process of trying to buy out our major partner in the Royals and double that stake from what it was originally 35% to sort of 70%. Uh, and I was very keen uh, to get some value-added co-investors from the US. I mean, like it or not, whether you're talking about technology generally or uh, sport, uh, you know, the US is just, you know, three to four years ahead of... Oh, easily. Uh, uh, you know, ahead of us, you know, and the way they think about everything from fan monetization to franchise building, et cetera. So, so I was on the lookout for someone in the US, came across Redbird. Um, they uh, they were outstanding. I mean, you've met Alex Shiny, you've met Jerry. They're incredibly thoughtful. They've got a very broad perspective uh, of all of the US sports. And in the space of 45 minutes, I mean, like you, my acid test for every conversation is, are you learning anything from it? Um, and I quickly learned an awful lot from my early conversations with Jerry and Alec. And so when they said, we'd love to back you and work with you uh, in the IPL, it, it, it was an opportunity that was too good to miss. And, and it, probably the clincher, if I'm really honest, is, you know, one of my sort of not quite boyhood, but longtime heroes has been Billy Bean. You know, his book, Money, or the book about him, Moneyball, influenced us massively in 2008. So when Redbird turned up on the first Zoom call, with Billy Bean, I kind of went a bit weak at the knees, but you know, getting an opportunity to work with him, for example, in preparation for our most recent auction, has been another massive learning experience. So, uh, Redbird have been fantastic so far. It's early days. I think. I think what's going to be interesting is what we do with Redbird. You know, 
outside of and beyond the Rajasthan Royals because I think uh, you know that there's lots of complementary skills there. Well, we'll look forward to hearing all about that. And if on your own acid test, um, it's about learning things over 45 minutes, I hope that I know I have. Um, I'm certain Roger Fantastic. has. And maybe our, our many listeners have also uh, learned a lot from you. It is such a joy to have you um, join us on the show. Thank you for being a former listener. And I hope you'll carry on being a, a future <laughs> listener in the future. But and, and also very, very best of luck for the season ahead. Yes, indeed. Great, and I hope, uh, I'll be sending you both a couple of shirts and I've now, you know, I've got two more Royals fans and... Uh, yes, you, know, that, you do. Worthwhile. All right. Well, you're lucky that that blue goes with my, with my colouring. So it's perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Really kind of you. Thank you. No, Roger, thank you. And I hope your, um, your mouth... Um, yeah, I, it's, I could, it's, it's the I hours could, got a bit better. Yeah, I couldn't <laughs> could, could notice it. But uh, Giles, so nice to see you. I'll pass on your best to Clive, who I still see uh, all the time. All right. Wonderful. Manoj, Thanks, thank guys. you so much for being touch. That was Giles. great. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that was um, that was great. You know, a guy from the, the world I work in now um, sees the world, I think, very similarly. Loved his uh, thought process. Loved how he brought it back to, um, at the end of the day, it's a business. It'd be assessed by business. What's the right kind of capital? Just perfect. And um, I'm so pleased for him. I'm so pleased that he's sitting on a top, top property now. I really am, Giles. Well, I think it, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? We we've talked about responsible capital as well as patient capital. We've talked about capital coming in. He talked he talked about all of that. He's living it at both ends. He's investing in sport. He's investing in technology and the nexus. And I think I found it very interesting that he put his hand up and say sport's been a little bit slower to to grasp the opportunity. But I think that that is changing. And I would be. Um, I think it's very interesting that he, with his experience, and Jerry Cardinal coming together, um, maybe watch this space. They they have a similar philosophy. And I think if you were to play the shows that we did with Jerry and Alex Shiner and, and with Minaj, that you'd see where they and why they get on. So very interesting. I, I'm, 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 I'm bullish for, for them and couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Yeah, splendid. Uh, well, that wraps up the show. Uh, another great show super happy with that if you follow us or want to follow us you can do that on twitter at entertained r that's the word r rate rate and review the show uh, i don't think md ever does that to any podcast but we all always feel we need to see it well um, uh, do you know what let's let's see if it works if anybody rates the show and clearly they have to put their name to it um and I can see it, and it's a review that is honest, because it can only be honest, but clearly with five stars. Um, and uh, if we get a thing, we'll draw the best ones out of a hat, and they can come and have dinner with me in London. I mean, that is the best offer you're Wonderful. ever going to get. That is fantastic. Great. Good for and, you. And by the way, Mum, for my mother, that does not count. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you can follow the show, as I said, at that Twitter handle. You can follow Giles at... GilesMorgan71. You can follow me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Roger, till next time. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.